Well, it's good to see everyone this morning. It's starting to feel more like summer again. But uh, it's good to see everybody back this week. We had a great time celebrating God's faithfulness of 50 years and far beyond that last week. And I'm excited as we continue to move forward, walking through uh, the first three chapters of Revelation and the seven letters to the seven churches. And I just want to remind all of us, part of the reason for walking through these letters is to really allow, we, we are at a unique mile marker as a church. 50 years, 50 years of God's faithfulness, 50 years of God calling us and using us and, and working in us and through us for the glory of his name and ministry in this community. And it presents a, a time for all of us as individual believers that make up this church, as a church corporately, as, as, as one body, to allow the Lord's word to examine us. To allow as the Lord examined each of these seven churches and he pointed out good things and bad things and ugly things and he called each of them to continue pursuing, to continue to walk in a relationship with him. So he calls us today and we wanna, we wanna continue to with humble hearts allow him to examine each of us. Now, having said that, let me just warn you that of the seven letters, I don't necessarily think the letter today is the most sharp of all of them to the church. However, of the seven letters, I do think the letter we arrive at today is for sure the one that would be the most contemptible to modern culture. And so it's imperative that as we walk through it this morning that we really understand the reality of the situation being addressed and how that, how that plays into our day that we really understand and see what God is trying to help us understand about who He is, and in light of that, then what He is calling us to do in light of the situation and the knowledge of who He is. So I invite you to turn with me back to Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to pick up in verse 18, Revelation 2, 18, here's what it says, and to the angel or to the messenger of the church in Thyatira, write, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, is saying this, I know your deeds, that is your work, your action, and I know your love and your faith or faithfulness, and I know your tender and compassionate, your kind, your service, your servanthood. And I know your enduring perseverance or your persevering endurance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I am holding this against you, that you are presently and continuously, you are actively and voluntarily tolerating, giving consent to, granting permission to the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she is teaching and leading astray my bondservants, so that they are committing acts of sexual immorality and eating things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I am throwing her on a bed of sickness, of illness, and those who are committing adultery with her into great distress, affliction, tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. 
Jesus instructs John to write a letter to the church in Thyatira. Now of the seven cities that, that, are, that are written to, Thyatira is by far the, the least significant and the most unimportant. But what in the world's eyes is insignificant and unimportant is never insignificant and unimportant to the heart and eyes of our God. And so he says, write, uh, write, to, write to the church in Thyatira. Now, if you're, a, if you're an astute Bible trivia expert, you may go, I've heard that city before because it is mentioned somewhere else in Scripture. When Paul, Macedonian vision, goes left into Europe, and he comes into the city of Philippi, and he, and he doesn't find a synagogue, and he goes down to the river, and he meets a lady named Lydia who was selling purple fabric. And she becomes the first person to respond to Paul's ministry in Europe to respond to the gospel. Where is Lydia from? Thyatira. So Thyatira, he writes to Thyatira. Now here's what you need to understand about Thyatira. Though in the eyes of the world, it is for sure the least significant and unimportant city of the seven, uh, it, it, it had carved out for itself a reputation as a great city of trade. There were trades, all sorts of trades. There were potters, bakers, uh, th there were clothes makers, textiles. Obviously, we know the famous purple fabric sold by Lydia, linen workers, tanners, dyers, coppersmiths, slave traders. There, there was rich trade that took place in the city of Thyatira. And with that trade, there was the trade guilds. So you would have a job in some trade, and if you wanted to be successful at your job, if you wanted to have a livelihood, you would have to be a member of whatever the corresponding trade guild was. Uh, maybe in some ways to kind of contemporize it, you, you're, you have a certain job and you've got to be a member of a specific union in that city. Now here was the thing about the guilds. The challenge of the guilds was each guild had a patron deity that was a pagan god. For instance, some of the guilds, their patron deity was the god Apollo, one of the sons of Zeus, obviously the, the king of the gods in the Greek, Greek pantheon. And so what these guilds would do is they would host these feasts where you as a member of the guild, you would be required, it would be your duty to come to that feast. And, and that feast wasn't just a potluck. But at that feast, you were to engage, there would be meat offered. It was, it was a worship service of, of the patron deity. And oftentimes, those feasts would, would conclude by descending into rampant debauchery and gross sexual immorality of all kinds. And so for you to be a Christian in Thyatira and to hear the exclusivity of Jesus and to say, I, I can't be a part of the guild, I can't go up to the feast, you are all of a sudden uh, putting yourself at odds with people in the city, your boss, fellow trade partners, potential customers, not to mention friends and family who don't understand your Christian faith. And what you're doing is you are sabotaging your economic livelihood because your job and its, its success was entirely dependent upon your loyalty to the guilds. And in the midst of this city, here's what Jesus says. Jesus writes and he says, hey, I know I, I, there's some good things. In this city known for work, I see your work. 
You're active, you're engaged, you're doing ministry. Not only that, I see your love. Unlike the great church in Ephesus who's lost their first love, there's, there's a genuine affection for me in your hearts. Not only that, I see your faithfulness. You, you have a reputation for being dependable, reliable, steadfast. You, you, you do consistently what you're to do. It says, I see your service. That word service is the word from which we get deacon. It describes a table waiter. It speaks of a, a selfless laying down of oneself and a, a, to give of one's gifts, times, talents, resources, to give whatever is necessary for me to give, to show tenderness, compassion, and to serve you for your good. It says, not only that, but unlike Ephesus, who, whose love is decreased and who I told you need to go back and remember the works you did at first, I see your works today, they're better. They're, there's a growth in maturity from where you started. He has some positive things to say to this church, but in the midst of these positive things, in the midst of a church that would look like to us to have a genuine affection for the Lord, that would be, be engaged in, in ever pushing forward in the ministry and work of the gospel, in the midst of that church, he says, but this, this I have against you. And by have against you, it's, it's not just something that is gonna somehow go away with time. We're gonna have to deal with the problem. And he said, this is the problem that I've got. There, there are amongst you in, in the church, you are, and it uses the word tolerate, and you heard me add some more in because it's a present tense active voice verb, which means you are presently, and it's not just presently as if you did it today, but th there's been a consistent pattern that is ongoing into the present, that, that is a willful choice. You are choosing to tolerate, to give permission, to give consent to the woman Jezebel. Now, if you're a Bible trivia expert, you know that there are two names you will never name a child out of Scripture. You will never name your son Judas, and you will never name your daughter Jezebel. It's the two, it's the two, uh, the two names crossed out, crossed out there. Jezebel obviously is, is a, uh, when you go back to the Old Testament, Jezebel is, a, is not an Israelite. She is from a pagan nation. She marries King Ahab of the Northern Kingdom and she wears the pants in the relationship and the kingdom. And what she does is she, she doesn't try to necessarily obliterate worship of Yahweh by just totally outlying it. What she does is she goes, we're gonna worship Baal. So sure, go bow down your, and, and offer that to Yahweh. And when you're done at his altar, come, and, come, and, come over here to the altar of Baal. We're gonna push it out. And anyone who, anyone who claimed exclusive loyalty to the one true God, obviously she dealt with in a harsh, deadly manner, and, and, and she would be a primary antagonist in the ministry of the prophet Elijah. So he says, you've got someone, now likely, we, we don't know who this individual lady was. It's clear her name's not really Jezebel. He's using a term from the Old Testament to describe her. Some have said she was a, wo a, a woman just in the city, not necessarily in the church. Others have said, and likely is the case, she, she was part of the church. Now, whether she was truly saved or not, we, could, we would need some more information, but likely she was part of the church. Some have gone so far as to say she may have even been the pastor's wife. That would be a stretch, not impossible, but it would be a stretch based on what we know from the text. But this woman, wh whoever she is, here's, here's what we know from the text, that she is, she is claiming for herself an authority God has not granted her. So she herself calls her a prophetess. 
Now we know in scripture that the gift of prophecy is a spiritual gift God can give to to both his sons and daughters. We know uh, even in the New Testament that Philip had four prophetesses who who were daughters. So it's not that that can't happen. What, What the problem is, is God gets to pick who has the gift of prophecy and God calls us prophets. We don't call ourselves that. And she's actively saying, hey, I I have a special commission from God and I have special insight and understanding into God's will. What is a prophet's primary job? It's to say, thus saith the Lord to this situation. She she said, I I, I know, I know what, what God is saying. And it says that she is teaching and leading astray. Now, we don't know the exact words she's saying. It just says that whatever she is teaching is actively deceptive and it is, it is pulling the people of God out from proper worship and into places where they are now committing and justifying sexual immorality and, and uh, engagement in the worship of idols, eating meat sacrificed to idols. I like the way that I like the way that one one writer said it. Her doctrine was attractive and seductive. At first blush, it seemed insightful, deep, perceptive. She had a way of opening the scriptures that was new and exciting, and her teacher promised her teachings promised freedom, prosperity, life. She claimed to exalt Jesus, but in actuality dethroned Jesus, claiming to have the truth, she peddled a lie. Essentially, what she was doing was say, compartmentalize your worlds. You can, you can be loyal to Jesus in your heart, sacred, but out here in the secular world, it, it's okay. What you, you can imagine like this. Hey, listen, Jesus is love. He wants you to be happy. Jesus gives life. Okay, Jesus said he came to give life and life abundantly. For you, for, for, for you to be disloyal to your guild, you're going to experience hardship. He wants you to have prosperity. You just step in. Jesus never really addressed that issue of sexuality if you read the Gospels. You can imagine all the things she might say as, as she pulls open. And remember, she's teaching, she's deceptive, she's a false prophet. And here's the danger with all, with all false prophecy and heresy. All heresy has truth in it. It's not 100% a lie. Lies are not heresy, they're just lies. But heresy is a mixture of truth and lie. That to the person not paying attention, not attuned to the Holy Spirit, not grounded in the Word, can easily be swept up in. And he says, you've got a woman who's teaching, you've got someone in the flock who is actively leading people astray in my name, and you are actively tolerating, you are consenting, you are giving permission, you are not confronting her, you are not dealing with and speaking clearly to the problem. And you can imagine how tempting the situation may be when someone stands up in church and says, you know what, I know that you didn't have enough money last month to pay your bills because you took a stand and you're not in the guild. Hey, let me tell you, you can worship Jesus and get your money too by, worship, by going to the fe- guild feasts. It'd be hard not to accept that if we're being honest. There's a temptation there. And she's being allowed to go on. now. Jesus in his judgment of the situation is clear, this is a problem. But notice that before we get to the intensity of how he will deal with the problem, notice the grace, the love, the mercy, the compassion. Do you notice what he says? Verse 21, I gave her time to repent. I have, I have given her a period of time to hear the error of her ways. 
to be pierced by conviction from the Holy Spirit in her heart that what she is doing, what she is teaching, the direction she is going is wrong, and to turn, to have a change of heart, mind, and affections, to turn back to me the truth. I have given her time to repent. For some of you, you may have heard what she taught and and thought, well, if it was really wrong, God would strike her down right now. And don't confuse, I I have been patient. But she has rejected, says literally, she has no desire, no wish to repent from her immorality. And so he, Jesus speaks then of, of solid judgment. He says, I am, gonna, I am throwing her, I am at taking active action against her. She who promises a bed of pleasure is okay, instead I will throw her into a bed of sickness. And those, and notice here, this mixture of firm justice, of firm righteousness, coupled with mercy and compassion. Those who are actively engaging in, in her deeds, those who are active in doing what she says, I will bring great distress upon them unless they repent. So he's given Jezebel the opportunity to repent. Now he's giving people in the church the opportunity to repent, to hear the truth, to recognize this is wrong, to say, God, I got it wrong, you're right, I'm turning back in right fellowship with you. But if they don't, I'll throw them in, into to great distress and, and not only that, but her, but her children, her, her, her spiritual children, if you will, those who are so committed, they're gonna walk in her ways. I will kill them, I will destroy them. He says, here's, here's the situation, Thyatira. I understand the challenge of your situation economically. I understand the challenge of your situation vocationally. I understand the temptation to idolatry and sexual immorality that is in front of you. I see some great things in your church, Thyatira, but there is this massive danger. You are tolerating and consenting someone who is telling you that I am okay with and pleased by your movement into immorality and idolatry, and I'm not. I've given her time to repent. She's chosen not to take me up. So now I'm telling you, I'm giving you time to repent. Don't delay. Say, well, how how is it possible for a church to have some of those good things? And then, man, it sounds like they're just knee deep. Uh, They're just waist high into into false doctrine, into into heresy. Well, look what he says with me at, uh, at at verse 24. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who are not holding this teaching, who, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I love it, Jesus, Jesus has sarcasm. So they're teaching you these are the deep things. Actually, they are deep things, deep things of Satan, and you've not paid attention. He said, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast. There's your strongest worded command in the past, passage. Hold fast what you have until I return. See, here's the reality. This church is is a mixture. You've got some who are siding, who are consenting to, who are going along with this teacher Jezebel, and and you've got some who are holding firm, who are saying, that's false. Uh, We're not buying into that. We're not okay with that. That's not who Jesus is. That's not what his word says. And he says, and to those of you, to those of you in that camp, that that remnant that's left of you, I, I don't have any other burden for you. You just hold fast. 
Hold fast to what you have. Hold fast to me. Hold fast to the true salvation you have by grace through faith. Hold fast to the the faith that was delivered once for all according to the previous book, Jude. Hold, Hold fast to me who's the final revelation of God perfectly revealed. Hold fast to me at my word inerrantly recorded. Hold fast. Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray. Don't tolerate, give consent to this false teaching. You hold fast. I see you. I know what it's costing you. You hold fast until I return. Now you say, church family, how does all this, okay, we see the reality of the situation. Where does this pick up in today? What is it that God is trying to understand? Well, church family, it, it should be pretty obvious to most of us where this picks up today. We live just like the church in Thyatira in a culture of gross idolatry and sexual immorality. And many times they go hand in hand. We live in a culture that, that actively promotes whatever desire, whatever desire you have sexually, no matter how it impacts uh, your view of yourself, your identity, your attraction, your orientation. We can throw out all the terms. Whatever you want, it's okay, have it. We live in a society that says, uh, oh, look at these idols. Look at all the stuff money can buy. Look at all the success your kids can have. And it can make you feel better as an adult to live vicariously through their success. Look at, we can name all the different idolatry that's up there. We can think about jobs and things where we're brought in and if if you wanna work your way up the corporate ladder, you've got to play the game. Even if the game has rules that are opposed to our king. We live in a society, but not only that, where it connects is we not only live in a society like that, but we now live in a society where there are many prominent pastors and churches who for one reason or another are saying, hey, we've been a stuffy, we've been stuffy Christians for too long. Guess what? We need a fresh understanding of scripture. We need to not be, we need to not be hostile with culture. Instead, you can have Jesus and all this culture offers too. And in the midst of the situation, the midst of this reality, church family, there is something God is clearly wanting us to understand. There is something he wants us to understand. One, he wants us to understand Jesus alone is our authority. Go back and look with me in verse 18. Notice how it starts off, the Son of God. Did you know this is the only time in Revelation the title, the Son of God, is used? Now, that's interesting. Not the only time in the Bible. Jesus is obviously the Son of God, but why is this the only time? Because who has authority? Does Apollo, the son of Zeus, have authority over you because of your guild? No, the son of God, the one true son of God has authority. Does the one who claims to be a prophet have authority? No, the son of God has authority. Church family, Jesus alone is the authority and he takes himself seriously. He does not tolerate the church's toleration of theological or moral heresy. Instead, he is actively, notice what he says, I want all the churches to know I am the one who is, present tense, continuously. I am always searching, investigating, 
And your body will say the hearts and minds, really the, the, the most accurate translation would be, I am constantly investigating and searching the emotions or affections and the thoughts and will of my people. He's the one who, who, who searches and knows he alone is the authority and, and in his authority, understand Jesus does desire people to have abundant life. But abundant life is never found in the empty promises of sexual immorality and idolatry. Amen. And just, just for the record, again, the word for sexual immorality here is the word pornonia in the Greek. And you say, well, pastor, what, what's, how do you define that word? Well, let me give you the simple definition. That word means anything outside of one man and one woman created by God, knit together in the covenant of marriage for life. Any sexual desire, fulfillment, gratification, satisfaction that is outside of that blessed sphere is sexual immorality, is pornonia. That means things of heterosexual nature, homosexuality, transgenderism. We can throw all the different terms that constantly come out. Those things fall outside of God's design and will. Sexual morality is anything outside of any fulfillment and thought or deed sexually of that is outside of one man and one woman in marriage for life till death does part. Jesus alone is the authority. Not only is he the authority, but he wants us to understand he sees and knows all things. Eyes of flaming fire. His eyes see everything. Nothing is hidden from Jesus. Nothing. There is nothing in your life or my life. There is nothing in any crevice of my heart, no affection, no desire, that he does not know and see perfectly. He knows our heartbeat as a church, both good, bad, and ugly. He knows your heartbeat, if you're in Christ, is by grace through faith, good, bad, and ugly. If you're not in Christ, he knows your heartbeat. He knows, he knows and sees all, and the eyes of fire imply that the way he sees, it is holy, holy, holy. It is righteous and pure. Not only that, he, he sees, he searches all things. He sees and knows he is active in investigating his people and, and calling us to himself. He stands, he wants us to understand, he stands immovable and mighty in his judgment towards sin. Now, what do you mean? It says he has feet like burnished bronze. The picture there from, again, from Revelation 1, the picture is of someone who's, it speaks of strength. Jesus is almighty. He has all power. There is no strength he lacks. He is almighty. Not only that, but, but in being and having all power, the kind of strength it talks about is immovable. Jesus doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So understand practically what that means. No matter how much culture may move the needle of what is normal and acceptable, Jesus does not change and is not budging. No matter how many pastors declare fresh and new insights and understandings of Scripture, Jesus is not altering who He is and what He said. He, instead, he stands immovable. What he says is good is, is good. What he says is bad is bad. And he is immovable in his feet of bronze of judgment. He will deal with his judgments. Don't change. They don't alter. But he also wants us to understand he's the authority. He sees and knows all things. He stands immovable and mighty in his judgment. But he's also faithful and loving to his people. Don't miss that. 
There is an intensity. Jesus speaks, I'm throwing her into a bed of sickness. I will throw those who follow her into great tribulation. I will kill her children with, with deathly illness. Those are, those are strong terms from a righteous judge towards that which is death. But also don't miss. Before any of that comes, what has first proceeded? Repent. Turn. Come back. Repentance in someone who's, who's not a child of God, who's not been saved, is, is the conviction that they're a sinner outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. They need his, his salvation that he alone can give, and they repent. God, I'm wrong. You're right. You're Lord. I need to be saved by you to be in a relationship with you, and I am trusting on, on who you are and what you've done to save me. That's repentance in the life of a person outside of Christ. For those of us in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God convicts us of sin. When we stumble, when, when seated at the table of fellowship with our God, our Father, our King, we get distracted by the temptations running across the ground. Conviction is realizing I'm wrong and I need to turn back to proper fellowship. You never lose the relationship when you sin, but you do have bad fellowship. And here's, here's what Jesus is saying. He is faithful and lovingly. The heart of God is never to just destroy people. The heart of God is to bring people to repentance, to bring restoration and reconciliation of people through, through himself, Jesus, to the triune God. It's to give people life and life abundantly. And when we respond, it's, it's not like God just wants us to repent so he can rub our face in our own mud. That's not how it works. God wants us to repent because if we're in Christ, he's already separated our mud eternally from us. East is the west. He wants repentance because he wants what is for our good. See his faithfulness, his love. And notice, he could go, that church in Thyatira, they're tolerating. I just don't want anything to do with them. That's not what he does. He says, I'm searching. I'm there. I know. I see. I'm amongst. He is faithful and loving in his call to repentance. So understand, he's the authority. He sees and knows all things. The things we hide. He is immovable. In his position, in his judgment, he is faithful and gracious in his call to repentance. So church family, what must we do? What is God calling us to do? Well, understand real simply today, we must not tolerate theological or moral heresy. Amen. We must not. We cannot condone it. We cannot give to it. And understand, it will always be a challenging fight because of what we might call some, some issues. There's the personality of heresy. Those who espouse it, many times they're smart, they're influential, they're charismatic, they're charming and well-spoken, and they know how to wield the Scriptures just like the devil himself. A little bit of truth little bit of lie. They make it easy to jump on board because sometimes what they say, it makes so much sense and it makes life so simple and easy. There's a personality that we're attracted to. There's an authority that they claim to wield, even though that authority may be seized by their own ambition and not found anything in the call of God. There is a theological twisting Remember, something that is 99.9% .9 true 
is still 100% wrong. There's a twisting, a changing of things theologically. It will be striking, interesting. It will come across to us as fascinating and new and, and fresh. It will appeal to our desires. And those who espouse it, not necessarily everything they say may be false. But if, if you're reading a book or you're listening to a preacher who, who repeatedly is saying false things, I'm not saying everything they say is false, but if they're repeatedly saying false things, you should not tolerate that. There's a moral challenge to it. It will cause that which God says is immoral to be moral. It will remove the hardship and stumbling blocks we face when God calls us to stand out. Instead, it will enable us to fit in. In church family, we see it all over the place. I see it when I pull up Instagram, YouTube. I see, I see well-spoken people with glossy presentations that take little things of Scripture and all of a sudden twist it to say that God is okay with things that God in His Word has clearly said He's not okay with. I see it in churches. That there, there is a major prominent church that is getting ready to host a conference. They've been hosting it for years. This conference will completely validate uh, essentially validate any form of sexual lifestyle someone wants to live. And this is one of the largest churches in America, out of which ha has planted thousands of churches all around America. There is a great danger today and the danger for us, church family, is oftentimes we tend to relate to speakers, to books, to podcasts, to the places that we hear truth and lies. We tend to relate on the basis of how they make us feel and not on the basis of how they line up with our King. And so, for instance, how do we tolerate stuff? Well, just think about what are the books you read, the podcasts you listen to, the songs. Listen, I got news for you. There are some secular songs I would rather you listen to all day long than some Christian songs. You should examine the lyrics of both. No label gets to decide if it's true or not. There are sermons we listen to. There are, oh, my goodness, this, this just really touched me. And I'm not, listen. God can, God, can, God can use a donkey to stop a false prophet. God can use anybody to say something. But we need to be careful that we don't go, wow, I heard this sermon. It just, wow, it so impacted me and I'm all about it. And meanwhile, ignoring that that person you heard the sermon from, maybe, maybe that was their, you know, a broken clock's right twice a day. Maybe that was their twice a day good sermon. But when you dig into the rest of their theology, whoa, danger. There's all sorts of ways we can tolerate, we can consent to it, give it permission to run around instead of speaking truth. Understand, we must be a church who knows the truth and stands with Jesus where He stands based on what He said. We need to speak clearly to issues of idolatry and sexual immorality. We must live life in purity regarding these issues. There is no life, peace, fulfillment, or satisfaction ever to be found for anyone in idolatry and immorality, only in Christ. We cannot tolerate. We must heed Jesus' call to repentance. Listen, here's the reality. God is good. 
Jesus is faithful even when we, his people, are faithless, according to Paul to Timothy. He is faithful to convict the Holy Spirit. He is faithful to interrupt and intervene into our lives and to call us to repentance if we've bought into something false. And this can come in a variety of ways. It could come from just internal conviction from the Holy Spirit. Someone could approach one of us, a friend who lovingly confronts us and says, hey, I see this thing that's out of the line with God's word and I'm concerned. It could come through a, it could come through a pastor's sermon. It could come through. The question is, will we heed his conviction and don't mistake we cannot confuse his patience for his tolerance you say well this thing's false i'm gonna go try it out god didn't strike me down i don't feel anything bad i'll do it again god didn't strike listen scripture's really clear that the god who is just is the God who is patient with us in our sin. He gave Israel 23 years of abject wickedness, calling them daily to repentance before he brought the boomstick, for lack of better words, and shipped them off in exile to Babylon, which was not his abandonment, but just a harsher stroke of discipline that was needed to humble them and bring them back. We cannot mistake in our own lives, uh, mistake his patience and kindness for his reproval. Instead, he says, I, I, I will repay each one their deeds. You want to sow a life filled with sin? I will allow you to experience the fruit of your labor. We also must not misunderstand repentance. Listen, repentance means restoration, not second-class citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. God doesn't want us to repent, I mentioned earlier, so we can smear our faces, and he wants us to repent because he actually loves us and wants what's good for us. Now, church family is what we need to also understand. For some of us, if we've bought into something false, if we're wading off into idolatry and morality, we need to repent today. But there's another side to this. Maybe some of us haven't waded into that. Maybe some of us are trying to speak clearly, but also understand this. If we're gonna speak clearly on these issues how God does, it can't just be that it's wrong, stop it. It's gotta be in a loving kindness that says repent. And not only that, but recognizes, do you see what he said? God is clearly not pleased with this Jezebel lady, but he gave her time to repent. We're gonna live in a world where people are gonna struggle with real issues of sin, with idolatry and immorality, and we can't just write them off after saying something once. There's got to be a faithful, loving call to repentance in light of the goodness and greatness of God that is steadfast and faithful, that there is hope, that there is restoration, and we allow time. So we need to understand we can't tolerate heresy. We've got to respond, recognize, and respond in repentance to his goodness and graciousness. But last thing as we come to the end here, we've got to hold on to what we've been given. Church family, this world will offer you it would feel so good to just be accepted and praised by everybody. It'll feel so good to just gratify whatever your desire is sexually. Whatever idol has caught your eye, you will find life if you will just give it your everything. That's what this world says. It's what the enemy tempts with. And in the midst of it, church family, you and I have been given a relationship by grace through faith if in fact you've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You and I have been given a relationship with Jesus Christ. We hold on to him who he actually is. 
How do we know he actually is? Well, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and he's given us the word in front of us. We hold on to the faith delivered once for all in the word. We cling to what the word says and to what it says rightly and correctly. Theology matters. Our minds matters. We take captive our thoughts to obedience to Christ to His Word. We're not called to be flashy or successful church family. We're just called to faithfully hold on to Him. We're called to love Him. We're called to be faithful, to serve, to persevere. We're called to grow into maturity that today, the works of today would be greater than the works of yesterday. We are called to hold on. Now look what He says. To the one who holds on, he says, hold on until I return. Now, catch this here at the end. He who overcomes and keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my Father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me just summarize this in simple for you. See, here's what I didn't tell you about Thyatira. Part of what made Thyatira insignificant, it wasn't some beautiful city on a picturesque harbor. It wasn't a capital. It didn't have grand libraries. It was a city that sat in the middle of a valley 35 miles inland from the capital of Pergamum. And the purpose of Thyatira was to house a military garrison so that if invaders came, they would hit Thyatira first. That garrison could have initial contact and rush back to Pergamum so they could set up the defenses. The whole purpose of Thyatira was to be a scapegoat that got wiped out by any evader. If you were a Thyatiran, you would experience being conquered and conquered and and house knocked down to only have to build it up again over and over and over. And if you today follow Jesus at his word in a world that is all about idolatry and immorality, it it is not hard to feel like you are going to be constantly stepped on and seem to be powerless to defend yourself. And Jesus says to the one who holds on, Those nations which have come through here, Thyatira, and constantly stepped on and all over you, when I return, just as my Father has granted me the right to rule, so you will rule those nations with me. You feel tired and stepped on today, Christian, because of where culture is at. You hold fast because I'm coming back. And when I come back, I have my reward with me. And you who feel stepped on today understand when I return, it won't just be eased up. Instead, you will rule. I will give you the morning star. What's the morning star? It's Jesus himself. This world which promises you everything, you hold fast. This world can give you nothing, but I will give you the fullness of myself, and I am everything. So church, may we be found faithful to hold on. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you. It is all about you. It is not about us. Lord, and I realize any time there is all sorts of thoughts and opinions and, 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 and ways the church has spoken well, ways the church has spoken poorly, anytime we come to the issue of immorality and, and idolatry. And, and at the end of the day, Lord, it's simply this. Jesus, you are God and you are worthy. You are the authority. Your eyes know every one of our hearts, those who 
of us who need to repent, those of us who need to repent for salvation, those of us who need to return to, to fellowship with you inside of salvation. You know those of us who are discouraged and, and just need the encouragement to hold on. Lord, you know. And as we move to this time of invitation, may you be worshiped and adored. May you find us surrendered, Lord, to hold on to you at your word, to do things your way by your power and grace. And Lord, if anyone needs to respond, may they do so today, Holy Spirit, at your movement. Jesus, we look to you. It's in your name I pray.